listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured episode 234. In this edition, we are speaking with Phil Jones, author of Work Without the Worker, about automation and its malcontents. But first, the news. For several weeks, New York City cab drivers were protesting and going on hunger strike to call out the city government for failing to deliver financial relief for the tremendous debts that so many cab drivers have incurred on their taxis. And this week, they finally broke their fast after the city delivered a financial plan that can help cabbies recover from the debt crisis. The New York Taxi Workers Alliance has been campaigning for years for a fair solution to the financial damage that has resulted from the collapse of the price of New York City taxi medallions. Medallions are those green token metal plates, each representing a licensed cab, which until a few years ago served sort of as poker chips in a speculative market for trading medallions. That market finally crashed, plunging drivers who had invested in these medallions into a financial abyss and left many cabbies now sinking in tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. Some have even been pushed to suicide, according to advocates. Yet the city has hedged around providing cabbies with a long-term debt relief plan. Earlier this year, the city did offer a financial arrangement that the de Blasio administration said would help cabbies restructure their debt. However, the Taxi Workers Alliance rejected this plan, saying it would provide too little relief for cabbies, potentially leaving them in lifelong debt of as much as $550,000. The alliance has been mobilizing members for months to push the city to adopt their debt relief plan, which would direct lenders to restructure loans to a specific amount and cap monthly payments for cabbies at $800. Most importantly, the loan would be guaranteed by the city so that drivers' homes and other assets would be protected in case of a foreclosure. The plan that the New York Taxi Workers Alliance has just agreed to with the city is somewhat different, but will still go a long way toward lifting drivers' debt burdens. Under the plan, according to the announcement issued Wednesday afternoon by the Alliance, quote, the agreement will allow for the outstanding principal on all medallion mortgages held by individual owner drivers to be restructured to no more than $170,000 per loan, with monthly payments capped at no more than $1,120. Drivers still unable to pay may have to relinquish their medallion, but will be protected from foreclosure on their homes or garnishment of their bank accounts, unquote. I spoke with Mohamedou Aliou, a veteran cabbie who says he's more than half a million dollars in the hole due to the crash in medallion prices. He spoke with Descent earlier for a piece we did on belabored stories. He went on hunger strike with his fellow cabbies and talked about what his life has been like dealing with the crisis. Yes, uh, it's been hard. It's hard. It's difficult. Because uh, me and myself, uh, I mean, I've been on, uh, this is my third day on anger, right? Because I couldn't take it no more. Watching my friend uh, going through all this pain and suffering. It's uh, very, very stressful. No work, no food. Too much anxiety. I think not knowing what tomorrow will be really like. Um, because the struggle been going on for so long since 2014, but uh, by 2018, we decided to take it to Syriol. So we've been back and forth, Syriol, DC, Albany, because uh, it's too much pain and suffering. It's uh, miserable. It's very hard. It does uh, kind of little bit too much for, for a human being to go through here in New York City. Uh, I hold so much money 
on this medallion. And then uh, there is no way out. If I do not get no debt forgiveness, there is no way for me. I won't be able to escape this debt. No, it's impossible. So the debt forgiveness definitely is needed. So I don't have to pay all my life for this debt. Not only that, my little ones, when growing up, won't have to carry this horrible debt on their shoulder either. With a new financial plan, he is hopeful that he can finally move on with his life. Yesterday, I had my life back. By four in the afternoon, I just had my life back, which was taken away from me for quite some time. So uh, yesterday was a new beginning. Uh, uh, yesterday was great. I, just, I really felt uh, like a, a human being, and then uh, I really felt like an American yesterday. So it seems it took um, weeks of negotiation with the mayor's office, but uh, why do you think it took them so long to finally come around? You know, from uh, from the beginning of this struggle, because we have been going back and forth to Serial since 2018, and uh, we, we we really believe we we on the right side, we on the good side, on the side of just justice. But uh, it's not free. We have to fight for it. So we really believe in ourselves, even though serials have been denying us uh, our right. Serials have been denied denying us our justice. We always believe in ourselves. Uh, but uh, we also knew it was going to take uh, some time because uh, nine people committed suicide. Uh, it never changed their serial mind. And uh, we have to move over our camp over there for 45 days. They still were not moving. But uh, we were believing ourselves and we believe in uh, some of the good people within the city, within the country. We believe in America. Things was going to get better because uh, America do better than what uh, knows better, do better than whatever was happening to us. We knew that was not America, that was un-American, what was happening to us. Thanks to a power broker, we would never thank him enough, Senator Schumer, because he was the power broker here. We've, uh, we went through so much. And then uh, thanks to him, we we really, really make this happen yesterday. Not only him, we had uh, f- some few elected officials, uh, Zorad Mandani and some other one that was really, really fed up with uh, what was going on with us. They, they couldn't stand it no more. They couldn't take it no more. They have to go anger striking. So I think that's what uh, really uh, make uh, the mayor think like this thing really needs to be done now or ever. So uh, we we cannot be ignored forever, you know. So I guess uh, Serial realized that, and then uh, they came they came back to a better sense, and then they just gave us our life back, which was. It, it, it means the whole war to me. Huh? That was Muhammadu Aliyu, New York City cab driver and member of the New York Taxi Workers Alliance. 
the sanitation workers in Glasgow were officially on strike as COP26 kicked off and delegates, world leaders, and climate activists poured into Scotland and the police arrested an inflatable Loch Ness monster. Yes, that's real. The climate activists have also showed up to support the striking, cleaning, and bin, which is British for garbage container, workers as the conference continues. Um, That includes the Fridays for the Future teen strikers who arrived today at the picket line as I'm recording. This is Thursday with a giant banner reading Solidarity with the Strike, along with their ubiquitous school strike for the climate sign, which of course was started by the now world famous Greta Thunberg, who also has shared her support for the strikers. As Rory Scothorn explained in The New Statesman, quote, perhaps future cops will take place somewhere in the metaverse, a simulated utopian city of the world, a great showroom for climate innovation and collaborative working, whose delegates wear their cop-branded headsets as the sea laps invisibly at their feet and the fires rage silently outside. But for now, cop must make do with Glasgow. And Glasgow is all too real. You can tell it's real because the people there can't stop talking about bins and rats. They're not wrong to do so. After the last-minute collapse of a last-minute deal, the GMB union, which represents most of Glasgow's refuse and cleansing workers, has announced that it will go ahead with a strike that threatens to exacerbate an ongoing waste crisis in the city. Complaints about fly-tipping, overflowing bins, and rat sightings have soared in recent months, placing extra pressure on the city's four-year-old SNP, that's Scottish National Party, administration as the world comes to town. While other strike threats, especially on the railways, have been averted with late deals, the refuse and cleansing strike still has just as much power to disrupt cops functioning as the thousands of climate activists pouring into Scotland's biggest city, end quote. Picket lines, he noted, quote, may offer a proving ground for a formidable alliance if climate activists can show solidarity, not just by listening and responding to workers' priorities and concerns, but by putting some of their energy into supporting them, end quote. As the union has noted, cleaning workers are the first line of defense for a decent living environment, yet these and many other so-called essential workers are being offered scraps while the city rolls out the red carpet for the visiting dignitaries. This is also, of course, a great example of a union using the leverage that it has. In this case, of course, embarrassing both local and national Scottish governments when they want to impress the world in order to win their demands. Rail workers manage to get a deal, but the sanitation workers continue to fight for fair and safe conditions, the kinds of conditions that should be part of any honest conversation about a green transition. If the workers responsible for our everyday health and safety can't live comfortably, how, as the union asked, can we begin to think about tackling climate change? And we're just going to bring you another little clip from the picket lines as uh, Chris Mitchell from the GMB Scotland has kind of become an internet celebrity because, um, well, just listen. Low-paid workers and activists are saying enough enough. Too much austerity cuts for years have been descending on that side. And we've had enough in us. And we're standing together. He's saying the Scottish government because of high Glasgow City Council. Get back on the table with the trade unions. That was Chris Mitchell from the GMB Union saying that the uh, Scottish government needs to use their Gucci shoes, get back to the table and give the workers a fair pay rise.
Last spring, we watched as Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama, mobilized to create the retail giant's first ever unionized warehouse. But that effort was sadly crushed after Amazon deployed a fierce counter-propaganda campaign. Now, Amazon workers are again seeking a union, this time in Staten Island, at a facility that has become well-known during the pandemic because workers began to protest there very early on over safety issues and harsh working conditions. The Amazon Labor Union, an independent union spearheaded by former Amazon manager Chris Smalls, builds on years of grassroots organizing work at the facility. Smalls was famously fired himself after he organized a protest and walkout at the Staten Island facility just as COVID was starting to explode in New York. He had accused Amazon of failing to adequately protect workers from the pandemic, and he was immediately fired, which set off both a legal battle against the company and a partnership with the Athena Coalition a community labor alliance that Belabored has covered before. So Smalls has been campaigning to get justice for other Amazonians who have objected to Amazon's high-pressure, high-injury labor regimen and demanded more health and safety protections on the job. And now those efforts are culminating in this effort to form an independent union, not attached to a larger union like the retail workers, Teamsters, or SEIU, all of which have supported Amazon organizing efforts in the past. This campaign is supported simply through a GoFundMe, which has raised nearly $40,000 so far. And the union has just recently filed the paperwork with the National Labor Relations Board for a union election. The group says it has gathered about 2,000 signatures of workers at the facility who favor a union. There are also ongoing legal battles being waged at the National Labor Relations Board. Throughout the pandemic, workers have filed complaints charging that Amazon has tried to suppress or conduct surveillance on workers who are trying to organize. And Chris Smalls is himself involved in a lawsuit brought by New York's attorney general over his termination last year. So the Amazon organizing effort might be the most politically exciting thing to happen on Staten Island in a pretty long time. Both sides appear to be spoiling for a fight. Since April, NPR reports, Smalls and his team have been, quote, holding barbecues, handing out water and coffee as people leave work, and setting up fire pits with s'mores, unquote. Amazon, for its part, has been using the stick rather than the carrot approach by, quote, posting anti-union signs around the warehouses and even mounting a fence with barbed wire to restrict the organizer's space, unquote. I can't imagine that corralling organizers behind a barbed wire fence is good optics for a campaign like this, but Amazon may resort to more creative tactics as the union drive intensifies. In Bessemer, it made headlines when it set up its own special mailbox for ballots outside the warehouse, apparently in an effort to confuse and intimidate employees. But Small seems up for the challenge. He posted a cheeky video of himself on Twitter the other night with a laptop and a stack of papers that he said belonged to a manager, which had been found after it was accidentally left at a bus stop. Smalls proceeded to throw the papers, write-ups and termination notices, in his fire pit. Because, hey, one man's write-up is another man's barbecue fuel. So... While that battle outside the warehouse starts to heat up, Amazon will have a lot to answer for before the National Labor Relations Board in the coming months. Forming a union completely from scratch would be an unprecedented triumph, but it's a high-risk approach for sure. Still, the Staten Island Warehouse was ground zero for the pandemic protests at the start of the COVID outbreak, and these workers could make history yet again. The workers at John Deere, who you heard about in our last episode, are still on strike, having voted down another tentative agreement that would have ended their strike. That is 10,000 workers on strike at the tractor manufacturing company, and as Michelle said last episode, is a further indication that the UAW leadership maybe isn't quite sure what the workers will accept. The vote was closer this time around, with 45% voting in favor of the proposed six-year deal and 55% opposed. 
According to Jonah Furman of Labor Notes on Twitter, one dear worker said, quote, how would you treat someone that steals from you? When given the opportunity, you punch them in the mouth. That's what we did tonight. We've been under attack for years and only get one chance to stand up for yourself. One worker, John Root, a 16-year assembler in Waterloo, told the Des Moines Register that he was going to vote down the contract, saying Deere can afford to pay higher wages than what was offered. Quote, Root says he knows cashiers who make as much as some workers at the factory. He has circulated a petition among UAW members demanding across-the-board $10 an hour pay raises. That would come out to hikes of 33% to 50%. He said union members should be especially motivated to push for better wages because of the death of Richard Rich, a dear employee in Milan, Illinois, who died last week when a car hit him as he walked across the road from his picket line. We want better pay, Root said, or that union member died for nothing. The whole country is looking to us to set the new standard for skilled assembly labor. As we've said on this show, and as is becoming increasingly obvious, workers who went to the job day in and day out during the pandemic, who have seen their companies remain profitable or even make record profits, are angry as hell and not going to take it anymore. And it also seems to be the case that union leadership is maybe not quite caught up in all cases with the anger from the rank and file. The ongoing challenge for the workers at Deere and manufacturing workers in general is going to be figuring out a strategy for channeling this anger into effective strike action, studying the supply chain problems that are ongoing, understanding points of leverage, and applying them. John Deere management is saying this is their last, best, and final offer, but we'll see how that actually turns out. As always, if you work at John Deere, we want to hear from you. You can email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. While we hear about supply chain issues around the world, there's another global supply chain that consists of workers doing what we might think of as high tech work, work that we might even think is done by algorithms. But in reality, as Phil Jones points out in his new book, Work Without the Worker, Labor in the Age of Platform Capitalism, a lot of the work we think is done by computers is actually broken down into tasks and being done online for pennies by workers across the global south. Phil is also a researcher at UK work think tank Autonomy, which you have, of course, heard about on this podcast before, and he joined me to talk about his book and the problems of organizing digital workers when they aren't understood as workers at all. So the book's basic argument is that, well, it's, it's that the world's largest tech companies, so Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon, are entirely dependent on an outsourced workforce in the global south, often those at the system's margins um, who have few other options for work. Um, and so they're, they're, although they're kind of treated as entirely disposable um, and replaceable, these workers support the artificial intelligence of these companies, kind of make their services run smoothly, for example. They help rank Google searches, so we get good search results. Uh, they give us what I call the automation experience, uh, the feeling that the platforms and services we use are running automatically, where in fact, much of what appears automated is challenging, grueling labor. So this might involve showing an algorithm how to recognize something entirely random seeming, like a, a kind of apple or a particular accent, or it might be something um, kind of a, a little bit more obvious. Um, so showing an autonomous vehicle, how to recognize a pedestrian in an urban center. Uh, the work is hosted on micro work platforms as, as short data tasks, um, 
which workers are paid for by the piece, sort of often very little money, like 20 cents for 15 minutes work. Mm. Uh, and the workers tend to have sort of no rights, access to unions, um, and they'll undertake this work remotely. Yeah. So we've talked about micro work on the, this show in the past, but um, tell us a little bit about sort of the history of these kinds of platforms and, and how this got started. Micro work begins uh, with Amazon Mechanical Turk back in 2001. Uh, this is just after the dot the dot com bubble, um, just after it's popped, <laughs> and the internet's infrastructure has become, by this point, relatively cheap. So Mechanical Turk started as a service only available to programmers um, who were uh, Amazon employees. Basically, Amazon had a problem; its algorithms were failing to recognize um, sort of duplicate product listings on on its uh, website. So Mechanical Turk basically allowed programmers to write software that could automatically outsource tasks to workers, um, often tasks that were still too complex for um, uh, an algorithm to complete. So the company soon realized, actually, pretty soon after this in 2005, uh, that there was growing, uh, sort of growing demand for cheap digital labor, and so launched the platform publicly um, in 2005. Soon after this, the site became a kind of prototype for a bunch of other sites like Clickworker, Appen, Playment, um, and the basic kind of model for these platforms is essentially the same. Um, tasks are hosted on digital platforms, so micro-work platforms, um, who act as intermediaries between the contractors who outsource the tasks and the workers that complete them. Um, and then the platform will take a, a cut from the transactions between the two parties. Yeah, so you note somewhere in the book that if the workers using these platforms were classed as employees, these contracting firms would rank among the largest employers in the world behind only a few governments and Walmart. Uh, love that Walmart's still up there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so can you tell us a little bit more about some of these other platforms? I think our listeners are probably familiar with Mechanical Turk, but maybe not with some of these other big ones and who they in turn are working for. Sure. So Mechanical Turk is, is actually one of the, the smallest of these sites, even though it's one of the best known. Um, most of the more kind of the recent platforms um, are actually significantly larger in terms of their, their user base than Mechanical Turk. So Clickworker um, claims to have over 2 million users, which is a platform which is fairly similar to Mechanical Turk in that um, the, the, sort of the, the, the site basically hosts all kinds of data tasks, nothing, nothing really particularly specific. Um, and then other more specific kind of uh, platforms, which tend to host um, tasks which are directly used to uh, bolster the machine learning capacities of companies like Amazon and Google. There'll be platforms like Appen and Lionsbridge and Playment. Um, and they tend to have uh, a slightly bigger, slightly bigger sort of user base than Mechanical Turk. So Appen has over a, a million users. Um, and these these platforms tend to offer very specific kind of tasks for machine learning purposes. So for instance, Linesbridge um, focuses on translation machines uh, such as Google's. So some of the translation work is pretty simple. Uh, so what MicroWork allows the platforms to do is rather than employ a proper translator with rights, union access, etc., they can have a flexible army of micro translators um, who each do kind of a little bit of translation work uh, but none are actually contracted to Google. So in effect, like a company like Google can, it can basically hire and fire workforce in the space of a day. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Playment a few times, which is the one that really, it really gets at everything just in the title, doesn't it? 
I wanted to, because you said that one in particular, um, talk about how the workers get paid on these sites and whether it is always in, you know, money. So this is one of the most interesting and kind of disturbing features of micro work um, is that actually the work very often isn't really presented as work and the wage very often isn't presented as a wage. In fact, the wage, as I say in the book, often becomes something closer to a wager, a kind of it's almost like a gamble that the worker takes on these platforms in that they don't know for sure when they undertake a particular task whether they're going to be paid. So um, th- 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 this, you know, this presents itself in all kinds of ways as, as wage theft, which we can get into a bit later. But one of the ways that this presents itself is as um, sort of substitute forms of, of payment. So instead of getting money, what you might get on one of these websites is tokens. So that might be tokens for uh, Starbucks coffee. Or in the case of Amazon Mechanical Turk, these tokens uh, might be for um, Amazon itself. So effectively, <laughs> the, the, it's a bit, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a clever system that they've devised here, kind of yeah. not dissimilar to um, the company town system where workers would, you know, have very few options in terms of where they consume their wages. There would be shops on site and they would only be able to use those shops for their basic goods. So you can see how something similar is happening here with Amazon Mechanical Turk and Amazon's kind of wider uh, consumer ecosystem. Yeah, it's enclosing more and more stuff. Uh, do anybody, does anybody still get paid in cryptocurrency on any of these? I've had a little look into that, um, and it seems like that's no longer um, no longer really happening. There was a couple of sites a while back that that seemed to be doing that, but I think basically the the the, the, the sort of um, the unpopularity of of cryptocurrency among um, certain sections of the workforce on these sites meant that basically workers were just leaving. Mm, interesting yeah Um, and of course the other half of of playment which i find hilarious is just is the idea that this isn't really work at all that it's a game and you might get some money for the game and it reminds me of this thing that like a million years like literally about 10 or 11 years ago that molly crabapple said at this panel at south by southwest about gamification that like the prize is what used to be called your salary (laughs) i like that but yeah, the way that like these things get pitched as like, ooh, you're you're playing a fun game, and then it's actually machine learning that's making Amazon a bunch of money. Right. I mean, one of the other ways that these sites are kind of a- gamified is through uh, rating systems. Mm. So you know, um, each worker um, will receive um, a-, a score, which is calculated by the past tasks that they've completed. So if they've completed those tasks to a satisfactory standard then they'll get a, you know, a higher rating, which goes towards their composite score on the platform. The higher your composite score, the more likely you are to get uh, more work on the platform. The lower your composite score, the less likely you are to find work. So what appears kind of as, as, as gamification is actually a sort of management strategy for um, contractors to weed out what they might consider to be uh, workers that aren't going to do their work to a satisfactory standard. Mm. Do the workers get to rate the the uh, assigners back? So on none of the platforms um, are there um, sort of internal tools for the workers to um, to rate contractors. But um, workers on Mechanical Turk devised a, a, a sort of a system, a plugin basically that you could use on the platform called Turk Opticon, um, which effectively allowed them to rate contractors. 
And this was really useful because, as I said a minute ago, wage theft is so rife on these platforms. Right. It would often be very difficult without a rating system uh, for workers to warn each other about dubious contractors who weren't going to pay. So what Turkopticon at least does is allows workers to um, effectively signal to other workers on the platform that there is a particular employer, um, a particular contract, so I should say, um, who's not, you know, who's not going to pay or is going to pay less than they said, etc. I love the sort of the way that the title of the book can sort of go in in two different directions, right? With automation, we're promised work happening without workers having to do it. But then you show us all of these ways that workers are still doing the work that we think is being done by an algorithm. And then in the sort of inversion of that, those workers are doing that work, which will allow their work to be automated in the future. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, it appears as if a machine is doing the work, but actually it's a worker who's often showing the machine how to do their job. That kind of ties in with the other reason why I chose Work Without the Worker as the title for my book, um, is that the contractors who use the sites effectively get all the work without the worker. Mm-hmm. So it's effectively the same thing as automation in that they have no responsibility to the worker in terms of rights, wage minimums, decent conditions, etc. Right. But also the worker has been disempowered to such a degree on these platforms that they no longer really pose um they don't really pose much of a threat to capital anymore you know they're they're remote highly fragmented atomized um and the platforms are set up in such a way um that it makes you know any kind of worker action um exceedingly difficult right right so they become users or um you know playing game, whatever it is that you might think of them as rather than workers. But so we'll return to some of these questions of the data that they're gathering in a bit. Um, but I wanted to talk about a little bit about how like some of what these workers are doing is really grueling, whether it just be the sort of day-to-day hunt for work or the people who are doing really gruesome content moderation, right? Of, of hate speech and, and violent images and all of keeping all of that off your Facebook feed um, is still being done by a human. And I imagine this is incredibly stressful work, which again is made more so by it not really being recognized as work at all. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's the potential for significant trauma with some of this work. Um, you know, content moderation, some of which, not all of which, is outsourced as micro work to countries like the Philippines. Um, will often mean on a daily basis being exposed to images of child abuse, far-right propaganda and hate speech. Um, so it, sh- it should go without saying that, you know, it's a dangerous it's a dangerous job. I mean, you know, to add to that as well, um, there are other kinds of psychological damage that workers could experience on these sites because of the kind of work that they're doing. So there's been a number of those looking at a, a study earlier for some other work that I'm doing that shows that the sort of uncertainty of zero hour and, and tiny hour contracts mm-hmm. is terrible for someone's mental health. And surprisingly, um, uncertainty creates anxiety, um, which in turn can then lead to sort of overwork as well to try and, yeah. you know, f- to try and um, bring in enough income for, you know, to, to, to survive. Yeah. Um, and then there's another thing, I suppose, as well, that kind of like, you know, even though the work's uncertain, it's often really dull and really repetitive. Um, and can kind of, you know, involve hunching over a laptop um, and clicking for most of the day, um, which may not sound particularly dangerous, um, but can alongside sort of producing 
psychological impacts like sort of alienation, ennui, whatever. It can also, well, it can also lead to stuff like kind of repetitive strain injury and other kinds of sort of um, physical pathologies. Absolutely. One of the things that I, I wanted to notice is the way that some of this work, despite being sort of, again, broken down into these tiny little tasks where the workers are powerless, is at the same time, like outsourcing management tasks, right? So um, you write about how Uber uses one of these platforms to um, check the facial recognition for the drivers when they're logging into the platform. And of course, Uber is now being sued by a couple of unions in the UK over its facial recognition being racist. So that whole thing is is really interesting in itself, the way management is actually being de-skilled. Absolutely, yeah. So the Uber example is an interesting one because basically, I mean, Uber's Uber's business model depends part, you know, because they don't have human managers, depends partly on uh, the machine learning algorithms being able to identify whether the driver who's on shift is the person that they say they are. And the way that they've done this is that there will be a, a photo on record of the driver, which is then matched with a photo that the driver takes on shift to prove that they're the person that they say they are. But actually, the machine learning algorithms have been pretty terrible, um, as as the cases that you've just pointed out demonstrate. They've been pretty terrible at kind of actually identifying uh, whether workers are, are legitimate or not. So what tends to happen over the last sort of four or five years is that then a task will be outsourced to a microwork platform and the microworker will make the decision about whether the worker um, is who they say they are. Um, and if they set, decide yes, then the task will go ahead. If they decide no, then the task won't. So what this kind of demonstrates on a, on a, on a sort of grander scale is that actually what we think of as the automation of management is very often... Um, the decomposition of management into um, tasks which are automated and tasks which are outsourced to a crowd of workers. Right. So one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book is the way that you situate this work in this global geography in sort of Mike Davis's planet of slums, right? Um, It's not enough that the work is boring and precarious. It's also being situated in the opposite of high-tech hubs, but in refugee camps. Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, so many organizations and companies over the last few years have sought to give Microwork a veneer of respectability um, as what they call, um, quote-unquote, impact sourcing. So institutions like the World Bank back in the early 2010s um, started to push Microwork as kind of the solution to unemployment in the global south. Right. and this happened around the same time as a number of NGOs started microwork programs in spaces like refugee camps and slums with entirely dubious mottos like uh, give work, not aid. Mm. Um, in a spirit not so different from microloan programs. So like microloan programs, it's a typically neoliberal kind of solution um, which sees market solutions as a panacea to kind of all problems. And impact sourcing organisations like SAMA, and Elegion, they're two, two of the sort of biggest impact sourcing organizations. Impact um, sourcing organizations. Such yeah. like, what does that even mean? Come on now. It's just words, isn't it? Um, um, and they'll kind of like, they'll recruit workers in the global south. So, so in Kenya, Pakistan, a few other countries, as, as you just said, often refugees or people who dwell in slums. 
um, to complete data training projects for big tech companies in Silicon Valley. And they mostly start as not-for-profit organizations, you know, these, mm-hmm. these impact sourcing organizations, but quite quickly, unsurprisingly, under market pressures, uh, become for-profit. Um, one of the things I found recently, actually, the organizations are, like so much, Mike, were kind of shrouded in opacity. Um, I've been trying to help a number of investigative journalists do some work into that looks into microwear projects recently in, in refugee camps and, and so forth. And it's been almost impossible to get the most basic information. Um, it makes the, 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 the whole sort of um, um, the whole sort of analysis of these these kinds of organizations and companies uh, somewhat uh, sort of speculative because we just don't have enough information to know precisely what they're doing. Or who they're doing it for. Or who they're doing it for. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you note somewhere in in the book that um, people might be training drones that might be bombing their former homes um, while they're sitting in a refugee camp somewhere being given work, not aid. Well, that's that's the nature of the work is that it's, it's so opaque, is that workers on these sites often don't know um, the end results of the work that they're working on. So for instance, face tagging tasks on microwork sites are undoubtedly used to train facial recognition technology. We know, we know that the technology contains eugenicist logics and produces highly racist results. Um, um, we know that it's increasingly popular as a police strategy. So the LAPD uses it. Um, it's used in lots of Chinese cities as well. Um, we know also from the last two years that COVID sort of saw, saw the use of this technology go up rapidly. Mm-hmm. But the tasks aren't labeled with any information about how their products will be used. So the worker doesn't know whether they're helping an AI algorithm used by the LAPD. Um, the tasks are entirely opaque. And the institutions and bodies that, that use the technology um, will, you know, for understandable reasons, often secretly contract it from companies like Amazon and Google. Right. Or not so secretly when the workers find out about it. And then uh, yes. the protest is, has been happening at some of these tech companies lately. Exactly. Yeah. And there's been a couple of good, really good investigative reports on um, The Intercept over the last couple of years that have revealed some of these 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 kind of um, mm-hmm. these projects where workers are in the dark about the kinds of things that they're producing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's Taylorism meets colonialism. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it, it really is just, it's so fascinating to me, right? Because we we often think of this, if people think of it at all, as sort of something that like, you know, I don't know, bored housewives in Silicon Valley might be doing or something like that. Not like people in, you know, a refugee camp in Gaza. And yet the reality of it um, is so... It's so grim. Your book is really grim. It's also very good. I just, <laughs> um, I don't want to depress our listeners too much, but it is like it, it's necessary, I think, to understand um, these broader problems of sort of the global labor crises that we're having right now. Um, that the problem of micro work connects to this broader problem of of global labor under demand of the proletarianization of so many people precisely when capitalism actually needs fewer workers than it used to. Um, so I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit and tell us sort of what is the the broader situation that workers are facing right now around the world? Yeah. So um, this is a, this is a story basically that I 
I, I take mostly from the work of um, of Robert Brenner, the labor historian. Um, and he, he kind of argues that back in the 1970s, US manufacturing entered a period of stagnation, um, which quickly sort of shifted to uh, Japan and Europe, which started off as a kind of crisis of overcapacity. So lots of companies started to look for cheaper ways to produce their goods and did so in the usual way, which means either um, downsizing the companies or outsourcing their labor to cheaper regions. So this meant lots of domestic workers in countries like the US, the UK, Germany, who were once in manufacturing, um, were transferred into the service sector, where job growth and productivity gains uh, are much slower than in manufacturing. Um, so this is this is basically because because of this 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 slow growth in these sectors, we've seen a kind of crisis of under demand, um, as you as you mentioned in the in in the question. But at the same time, as this kind of crisis of under demand starts you find ever larger numbers of communist and colonized countries opening up their labor markets as they decolonize and, and move into the capitalist system. So the global supply of labor expands, as you say, right at the moment when capital kind of no longer needs as many, needs as many workers. Um, and and what, we, what we haven't seen, at least, you know, so far, this could change after COVID. We've not seen gargantuan levels of kind of unemployment as some people have predicted. What we've actually seen is something less spectacular. Um, which is kind of this continual downward pressure on wages, forced part-time work, um, the continual growth of, um, you know, the, the gig economy and the informal sector. Yeah, and some of this, um, the service question, right, which is that, you know, as, as the nurses I was talking to recently on strike in uh, Massachusetts would point out, right, you can't outsource the nurse, you need the nurse by the bedside. Um, interestingly, you can outsource a lot of what the doctor does, uh, mm-hmm. which is why some of this is really interesting because the, the breaking apart of these um, service sector jobs into the things that need to be done sort of by hand in person and the things that need to be done, that can be done either by an algorithm or by a click worker in India um, are it's not necessarily the job the the jobs we think it's going to be right like sometimes the uh the jobs that can be automated are i think you mentioned um like wall street trading desks and things yeah i mean it's interesting that you mentioned uh doctors because you know um there are now algorithms which can predict with um a higher degree of of accuracy than any doctor particular kinds of cancer um, and what that you know, what that effectively means is that um, workers on micro-work platforms, you know, as, as, these, as these kinds of technologies develop, will likely more and more be um, labelling images, say, of uh, particular illnesses and diseases uh, to show algorithms how to recognise these particular phenomena. Yeah, I was just thinking about that because, of course, the nurses were also saying, like, you know, during the pandemic, especially pre-vaccine, the doctors were, you know, peering in through a window or seeing patients via FaceTime, but the nurse has to go into the hospital room. Um, And if if you, if the doctors start to see patients via FaceTime, well, then they can see patients via FaceTime from anywhere, can't they? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that, 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 um, the shift to remote work that we've seen over the, over the course of the pandemic is, I mean, is to my mind as much a, uh, a threat to many jobs as it is uh, a promise uh, to to some people that have en- enjoyed you know some of the some of the benefits that come with not having to commute etc yeah 
Yeah. Um, so jobs are bad. Um, anyway, but I wanted to return to the tech question, which is um, connects to all of this, right? Because the, the data these workers generate is teaching machines that will replace them kind of the way the workers in Indiana that, you know, when I went to the carrier plant, the worker and the Rexnard plant, the workers there were being asked to train the workers from Mexico who are going to replace them at the company's new factory down there. Um, but yet high tech and sort of more dehumanized. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's also easier on a microwork site to, uh, you know, for a worker to train a machine, how to do their job than, than it is in a factory or whatever, partly because, you're working within the context where artificial intelligence is 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 built and then trained already or on a laptop. So one of the things that's interesting on the, if you look through the terms and conditions of some of these sites, is that they suggest that the data about how the tasks are done is potentially more important than the products of the tasks themselves. Mm. Um, what that basically means is that well, what one can speculate, I suppose, is that microworkers are showing machines how to do their jobs. That is directly showing sort of machine learning algorithm how to do the specific task that they are currently undertaking. And this is kind of speculative, but it it, it sort of isn't as well. I mean, if you look at on sort of Amazon Mechanical Turk site, they're pretty explicit about this. That is sort of if you if you take the time to read the terms and conditions on their website, they effectively say that any task completed on the platform the data from that task can be used by Amazon for its own machine learning purposes. Now, it seems to me it would, it, you know, it would make sense that the real reason why Amazon took the Mechanical Turk platform public, rather than keep it as an internal service, was not to take a cut from transactions between workers and contractors, because that's not really actually even that profitable in terms of sort of, you know, Amazon's wider business model, that's a, a, a drop in the ocean. But actually the real reason was to gain kind of wider access to a range of once and available data. And of course, with the gig work, you don't have to fire the worker at the end of the training process because you never hired them really in the first place. You hired them for 30 seconds or two minutes. Well, precisely, yeah. It's not It's not as if, um, you know, you owe them a severance package or anything if their job is automated. As you point out, you can just, you know, you can just um, effectively just erase them from the platform. I mean, that this is one of the more, you know, the more difficult things that workers have to deal with on these platforms is that neither the platform nor the contractor has any obligation to them, any set of responsibilities to them. So this can mean basically that if they, you know, do something that the platform deems, I don't know, problematic or, or, um, or sort of challenges the challenges, the sort of principles of the platform, whether they can simply just erase the worker's account on the platform, um, without a word of warning or, you know, without even offering the worker any reason. And it is, from what I can tell anecdotally from looking on worker forums, um, incredibly difficult uh, to protest these decisions and, and get the platforms to change their minds. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, this is, you know, again, related to the Uber problem that the outsourced workers are being used to do. Um, are the outsourced workers having to fire other outsourced workers? Anyway. Uh, gosh, it just gets more grim. So you write about the way that this is, that these sites are sort of presenting themselves as the quote benevolent, forward-thinking guardians of a new labor compact designed for a new generation of workers who allegedly desire greater independence over security and decent pay. And this is the thing, right? Is that, that, that when they are sort of making grandiose promises about giving work, not aid, and all of this, it's it's 
also in service of how wonderful Jeff Bezos and the rest of them are. So I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about that myth, but also the way that like you write towards the end of the book, like this kind of flexibility could actually be good if it wasn't controlled by a handful of terrible billionaires or even good billionaires. Yeah. There are no good billionaires. <laughs> There's no, I mean, yeah, that's, that's a, uh... That's something. That's something easy to to conclude, isn't it? There's, no, there's not very many good billionaires. <laughs> um, yeah, I've, I've, it's a it's a quite a tricky question. I mean, you can sort you can trace this myth back, I suppose, to the rise of of Silicon Valley in the late eighties um, and early nineties. Bill Gates during that that time infamously invented what people called the the permatemp, um, a worker that would have once been a kind of empl- an employee for Microsoft. But sort of became this temper, this this sort of uh, perennial temporary member of staff, and you know they tried to sell this as a good thing: more choice, independence, um, more flexibility, etc. Uh, and of course, you know all, all we've seen over the last sort of twenty years, particularly over the last decade, is Silicon Valley continually broaden this ethos out mm-hmm. to ever more so- sections of the workforce. So from everyone from kind of taxi drivers for Uber to accountants who are using, you know, Upwork, they're now being told that being an independent contractor and having no rights, et cetera, is actually, you know, is actually a good thing. So yeah, in a way that's, that's, that's kind of, that's the myth, but that isn't the, that, you know, that isn't the only way of viewing flexibility. That is Silicon Valley's way of viewing flexibility. And as you rightly point out, flexibility can be a good thing too. Um, it can mean, you know, the possibility of, of working less, um, having more choice over your work when you do it, what you do um, and where you do it from. But as you say, as it stands, tech companies kind of dictate what flexibility means. And I think what, what we need to see more broadly across the sort of labor movement is sort of a socialist form of flexibility being more central to the kind of demands that unions, that unions make. I, I mean, I, I don't know so much about the American context with this, but I know at least in the UK, um, this is not really a demand that unions um, here have ever really been particularly interested in pushing for. It's more security, a good job, um, decent pay, all very important things, but also let's get the flexibility with that too. Yeah, it's it's interesting now, I guess, while we're talking about um, the great resignation and all of this that that and the striketober um, that so many of the strikes that we've been seeing are demands about working time and control over it, that a lot of the fights that are happening in the workplace are about whether people want to return to the office. Um, we're sort of seeing these fights about like time and place of work return to centrality in a way that I think um, that frankly, a lot of unions haven't caught up with. That these are the central concerns of their their members now. Yeah. And I think, again, just to sort of bring this back to, to, to microwork, um, you know, a lot of these a lot of the questions that have arisen, um, you know, over the course of the pandemic about, um, as you say, the sort of the time and space of work, where one does one's work for how long and, and, and during which hours. Um, these, these are, let's say, sort of organisational kind of um, principles that microwork platforms have been experimenting with over the last sort of, you know, 10 or 15 years. Um, so, for instance, kind of, you know, seeing... Um, whether it's possible to surveil workers when they're working in their home, right? That was, you know, that's something that we've seen 
become a significant problem over the course of the pandemic with, you know, with bosses using Zoom to kind of spy on their homework and stuff. But this kind of stuff has been happening on microwave platforms, um, you know, long, long before now. Similarly, um, we can kind of think about the, the, the question of, uh, of time as well. Workers on these platforms very often will be working very late into the, you know, very late into the evenings and late into the night uh, simply to make ends meet because they, um, you know, they have no set hours and they have no uh, set amount of, of work for the day. They have to decide for themselves how much they do, which will be under, you know, under pains of survival. So these questions of time and space that are emerging at the moment in relation to kind of digital technologies, I think basically we can learn quite a lot from microwave platforms about um, sort of how to think these problems through. So I wanted to end with a couple of sort of present day stories, um, one of which is, of course, the supply chain crisis that is going on right now, which is a labor crisis, though it's I feel like it's not really being talked about that way very much. Um, but in going over my notes on your book, I couldn't help but think about, again, this part of the supply chain, the virtual supply chain here, right? The micro workers don't have to put what they're doing on a container ship to go through the Suez Canal in order to be outsourced to. Um, so I guess I wanted to ask you how the supply chain crisis that we're seeing and hearing a lot about right now overlaps with this kind of, um, digital outsourcing that you're writing about here. I have a kind of roundabout way of answering this question. So, um, you can kind of imagine a supply sort of chain crisis with data, um, as well as the, the kinds of tangible products that you would get on, you know, car, sort of the cargo that you would get on a container ship, for instance. Um, a data shortage is very much is possible on these sites, but I think I speculate that it would take something like a general strike on these platforms to to, to kind of cause something like a data blockade, which mm. would you know stop stop data from moving moving around circulating in the way that these platforms kind of need it to. Workers would need to organise basically to kind of sabotage tasks across these sites and prevent the flow of data that these companies rely on. Um, which is not, I don't, it's, it's not a, 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 an easy or particularly attractive strategy for workers, I think, because as we mentioned a minute ago, some could simply just be kicked off the platforms um, or maybe they'd receive low ratings and they'd find it more difficult to, uh, to, to, to get jobs in the future. Um, so that's kind of like, it's, quite, it's, it's a real disincentive to collective action. But it is, I mean, it is, you know, it is possible and it is sort of a strategy that I could see these workers using in the coming years. Yeah, I think um, one of the things you write about toward, about the questions of these workers organizing is um, the need, I guess, to make themselves seen in physical space again as part of some of these protests. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the most most important um, important strategies I think for micro workers to cultivate in the coming years um, is exactly as you say, spaces where uh, they can meet. Um, and create the sort of the, the 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 sort of bonds of solidarity, the emotional bonds that are necessary to create um, uh, the kinds of worker action that we've seen on platforms such as Deliveroo and Uber. So one of the things I talk about in the book, one way that you know this might happen is uh, via the worker centres model, which is is not it's not something we really have in the UK. It's something which seems to be a a, a bigger thing in the US. Um, and mostly 
is dedicated to kind of seems to be mostly dedicated to um, day laborers, sort of mi- migrant workers. But actually, what what you know what would be really useful is for micro workers to have something equivalent, um, which would be set up in the in the cities where um, you know where micro work is most popular. So uh, Mumbai, for instance, or or maybe in um, um, in Kinshasa, places where basically a lot of this work is taking place. So that, as I say, that, that that workers can, you know, kind of create the sorts of emotional bonds, I suppose, that are necessary for for, for solidarity. Yeah, digital worker centers, folks. I know some of you are listening. Um, get on it. Uh, and of course, right now the the COP twenty six conference is happening, and so of course I'm thinking about the climate impact of all of this automation and photomation, and because of course one of the other things that outsourcing accomplishes is it also moves the pollution away from higher paid global North workers, as well as the jobs um, and situating the in country in developing countries that maybe don't have the same level of regulation anymore. Um, so I wonder if you've thought at all about the climate impact of, of this tech work being sent to poorer countries and how it relates to this sort of outsourcing dirty work and then blaming the global South for being dirty. I mean, all of the big tech companies have, quite sort of bold commitments on climate change. Right. I saw something the other day that said that their targets are kind of like net zero by 2030, some of them 2040. Mm. Um, but then I've also I've also seen, a, I saw a, a, um, a report featured in a Financial Times article the other day that said that tech-related emissions are rising by 6% annually. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, it's really hard to see how an industry that is so entirely dependent on cheap electricity is going to divest itself from carbon intensive industry without being forced or regulated. Um, even without all the other ways that big tech is carbon intensive, you know, data centers, buildings that store data to create the cloud account for, you know, increasingly large amount of, of, of global emissions. Yeah. So I, you know, I, it's again, though, we, you know, we, we sort of also come back to this problem of, well, the people worst affected by climate change are also those who are forced to work for big tech. So micro workers, most of those who do micro work are in the global South where the worst impacts of climate crisis, you know, the climate crisis are being felt. Um, I mean, not that micro work is, is unique in this respect, you know, like other workers in India, Bangladesh and South African countries who are working at the end of enormous supply chains. Micro workers are, are often working for companies that are damaging the places where they live. Ah, <sighs> Yay, we're doing great. Um, and then lastly, <laughs> right, we, we touched on this a little bit already, but I did sort of want to end with like, well, COVID's not over. And particularly the places where this work is happening, COVID is really not over because um, our countries and others are sitting on vaccine patents. Um, so yeah, how does COVID impact all of this? Does it get sold even more as like, ooh, it's COVID safe work that you can do from your home or your cramped refugee camp where you can't be COVID safe because you, anyway, um, I'm not trying to be really depressing, I swear, but you know, yeah, I guess what has been the, the impact of COVID on this industry and what, how is that impacting the sort of future direction that these sites are going in? So uh, exactly as you say, COVID has been has been really a, 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 a boon for these sites in the sense that um, you know the two things that they depend on is um, attracting workers that want to work from home and also providing um, you know 
tiny sources of income for people that are unemployed. Plenty of people have been unemployed during the crisis. So there was a, a blog post on Appen about a year ago now, which was effectively sort of boasting that its numbers had, had gone up during COVID. But what's kind of worrying is, is that not necessarily the amount of work available has gone up. So you might be seeing more and more people trying to find work on these platforms, which, you know, um, creates high levels of competition and, and, and potentially lowers the kind of working conditions for everybody. Although actually lowering working conditions from where they are at the moment on these sites would be close to impossible. But also, exactly as you point out, these sites are very good at marketing themselves as kind of, um, you know, agents of the remote work dream. So it's not, you know, it's not even that um, people are necessarily desperate when they first go and use these sites in countries like the UK and US. It might just be that people, you know, want to make some more income from from, from home, and particularly during the pandemic when people were, you know, at home all of the time during lockdown. Um, unsurprisingly, traffic on these sites went up rapidly. Um, and that, that, that will be partly to do with the fact that they're good at kind of advertising themselves as spaces to do a bit of um, fun, easy work for a bit of extra money. Fun. I mean, that's the, you know, that's the vibe on these sites. So like, you know, you mentioned Playment earlier. God, never going to get over that one. The name. I'm never going to get over that one. Um, Yeah. Okay. So what can our listeners, whether they are working on any of these sites or not, do to be in solidarity with workers on these platforms? The people that are, are working on these sites, um, you know, have been trying for years and years and years to find strategies that um, can push these sites to kind of offer better conditions and, and, and wages and et cetera. That, that work is happening and there are more and more people getting involved with this, the, the sort of the organizing side of this, which is a good thing. Um, I suppose one of the things that workers can do to be in solidarity with these workers is is to talk about it because the work is hidden. The work is often invisible. So just to, you know, make sure that people know about it, make sure that when we're talking about the problems with tech, we're not just talking about surveillance, privacy invasions, um, the extraction of data, etc. What we're also talking about, as you said earlier, I like this phrase, um, the sort of tailorist forms of of, of colonialism that we're seeing in these countries, um, whereby the most desperate people in the world are being forced into the situation where they have to do work for big tech. So it's about keeping, I I think, yeah, that's what I would say is is keeping the conversation uh, away from those limited parameters where, um, you know, the discourse around big tech focuses entirely on the things that negatively impact people in the global north, trying to broaden the conversation out so that we can think about the ways in which this work also impacts workers in the global south. You're listening to Belaboured, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And that was Phil Jones, author of Work Without the Worker. And you can find... And that was Phil Jones, author of Work Without the Worker. You can find out more about the author and his book on our show page at the Descent Magazine website at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for 
arg, I wish I'd written that, in which we talk about the pieces that we read and liked, but alas, did not write. My pick for arg is Stop Forcing Workers to Stand on the Job by Alex Press in Jacobin. This piece was an interesting look at a right that isn't often talked about or even considered in our debates on working conditions. One of the issues that has driven workers to stand up to their bosses is the right to sit down. Think about it. The obligation to stand is one of the most basic ways that these servile classes have been distinguished from people they serve throughout history. The footman is one of the classic liveried servants who greeted guests and waited on them. The verb to be waited upon is to have someone standing before you ready to take your order. And in our modern retail stores, sales clerks are almost always standing, for some reason. Infantry soldiers stand at attention to show their subordinate position to their commanding officers. And for those of you who grew up in the age of telethons and the home shopping network, operators, who ironically usually sit at their phones, were always standing by. When's the last time a bartender took your order while sitting on the other side of the bar from you? Of course, for some of these jobs, like being a server, standing is often necessary because you're constantly bustling around from task to task. But what about being a greeter? at the door at Walmart, or for that matter, a host at a restaurant. The latter is the example that Press uses, describing her first on-the-books job at a restaurant in which she spent her entire miserable shift on her feet, simply because she was ordered to do so. Looking back, she asks, is it too much to ask just to let workers sit down for a while? For some employers, yes. In the service industries in particular, forcing workers to stand is a matter of presentation, perhaps. You want your retail clerks to seem alert, energetic, ready to help you, enthusiastic even. Or maybe you just want to discipline them by preventing them from sitting down because you don't want them to feel too comfortable. Whatever the motivation, mandatory unnecessary standing as a job duty is about controlling workers' bodies and limiting their autonomy. And it's effective. I mean, forced standing is a form of torture when done for long enough. Forcing workers to keep their bodies in a single position for the entire shift, standing or sitting, is a way of constantly exerting some kind of physical and psychological control over those individuals, even when the boss is not present. Press writes, quote, In a country that hasn't raised its federal minimum wage since 2009, the right to sit down may not be at the top of the list of workers' demands. But for many who are subjected to arbitrary standing for hours on end, it is certainly on the list. While there are downsides to sitting down jobs, as any office worker will tell you, it is not great on the body or the mind to spend day after day hunched over a computer screen, the pointless discomfort of having to stand while performing work that could easily be done from atop a stool or a chair is particularly grating, unquote. Not to mention humiliating. The very pointlessness of it is dehumanizing. And in recent years, workers have gone to court to challenge the no-sitting rule at some of their workplaces. In a lawsuit against CVS Pharmacy, Justice Carol A. Corrigan of the California Supreme Court opined, quote, There is no principled reason for denying an employee a seat when he spends a substantial part of his workday at a single location performing tasks that could be reasonably done while seated, merely because his job duties include other tasks that must be done standing, unquote. It was a mixed ruling, but generally... It was in favor of the employee's contention that unnecessary sitting was simply unnecessary. The term reasonably was a bit of a gray area there, but overall the idea is that if a worker is doing something that doesn't require standing, they simply shouldn't be denied a chair or stool if that's what they prefer. And the issue is what they prefer. As Press mentions, the right to sit is not an endorsement of sitting all day, as there are many jobs that do require constant sitting in a bad way, 
not just office work, but say being hunched over a sewing machine in a sweatshop, for example, or sitting all day in a cramped taxi cab. Those types of jobs bring their own risk of ergonomic injury due to repetitive stress, etc. Hence the standing desks that have been trending among professionals lately, though that is a privilege that very few have. Anyway, the bottom line is that workers have the right to position their bodies however they want if they can get their work done at the same time. Press concludes, quote, so long as workers are told to stand when they could sit, the issue will continue to be one of the many frustrations of working in the United States. Employers who force workers to stay in a single uncomfortable position for no particular reason are simply doing it because they can. And of course, that is the point. It's petty, but cruel. The employer believes that it has the prerogative to deny a worker comfort. This is a parallel method to denying workers water or bathroom breaks in order to show them their subordinate position. The worker is degraded and denied the dignity of being able to control their body. This humiliating physical subjugation harkens back to the days when one's daily toil actually necessitated an uncomfortable body position, such as scrubbing a floor on your hands and knees for hours, or doing the back-breaking job of picking up produce in the fields an occupation historically known as stoop labor due to the hunched position people, mostly migrant workers from Mexico, had to assume in order to harvest the crops. The idea of stooping all day was seen as below the dignity of many American workers. One of the dividends of living in a modern society is that we're afforded more comfort, space, autonomy, and privacy than people had, say, 100 or 200 years ago. Presumably, these little liberties are now incorporated into our framework of what being a free individual really means. Today, bosses enjoy this sort of privilege with abandon, but workers need their fair share of it too. And too often, the privilege to be waited on means undermining the bodily autonomy of the people who are doing the waiting. The right to sit is like the right to rest. It shouldn't be something that workers have to fight for, but these days, they do have to stand up to their bosses in defense of it. Listeners to this show know all about the St. Vincent Nurses' Strike, and I have another upcoming story on it for The Progressive. But in the meantime, I wanted to call your attention to a story by Jackie Germain at noted radical publication Teen Vogue, looking at the St. Vincent Strike from an interesting angle, that of the nurses' kids. The piece is titled, St. Vincent's Nurses Are on Strike. This is what it's like for their kids. One of those kids, Lorelai Soper, told Jermaine, quote, It didn't seem like a huge deal to me at first because it hadn't really sunk in. I was just eating my dinner, then it kind of happened. I was like, how long do you think this is going to go on? What is this going to entail? And that's when she told me that they were going to be picketing and she would basically be unemployed for however long the strike was going on. Other teenagers were anxious about the possibilities. Jermaine writes, quote, Brothers Joshua and Jacob Mobley say their mom brought the decision to strike to the family, and together they talked through the pros and cons. Jacob says he was surprised so many nurses voted to strike. He understood the decision and was proud of his mom for making it, but with the unemployment crisis and economic downturn earlier in the pandemic, he was also wary of the risks. For such an uncertain time, there's a fair amount of courage and honor that goes into making that decision, Jacob says, reflecting out loud. There's a certain amount of new respect I kind of gained from my mom and my dad through this. Because I truly would never have been able to make that decision. There's a lot more that goes into it than just voting for a strike. There's a lot of uncertainty in that situation. For Lorelai, that uncertainty is manifested as money concerns. Her father is a disabled veteran and doesn't have steady employment, so Lorelai's mom provides the family's main income. She brought her mounting anxieties to her mom, who reassured her that the family would be okay. To the date, the family has made adjustments but is in good spirits. End quote. 
It can be easy, as we've noted before, to talk about strikes as though they are thrilling and exciting, and for observers, they are. When you can visit the picket line as a choice, bringing donuts or pizza or healthier snacks, it can feel like a big party. But longer strikes especially come with definite downsides, and pieces like this are necessary counterbalances to all the striketober hype. Not because they should discourage workers from taking action, but because we should understand exactly how hard it is for these nurses to refuse contract offer after contract offer, for the John Deere workers to vote down that tentative agreement. They are taking massive pay cuts right now, or maybe not getting paid at all, depleting savings, putting lifestyles on the line, and spending exhausting hours on the picket line. They are not actually sitting at home eating bonbons. As Lorelai explained to Jermaine, quote, the people that are on these strikes, and not just the St. Vincent strike, strikes in general, they truly are fighting for what they believe in. It is so important to me to get that message across because of the fact that I see people saying they just want to collect unemployment or sit around and do nothing all day. Like that's so frustrating because it's totally the opposite of what is going on. Whether you see it or not, they're always planning. They're always working together. They're always talking to people, discussing things. No matter what you're fighting for, no matter what job you're striking at, it's literally a constant thing. As Striketober has now become Strikevember, we'll keep you updated on St. Vincent, John Deere, Kellogg, the possible strike at Kaiser Permanente, the Scottish bin workers, and so much more. Thanks, as always, to the great folks at Descent for hosting us for 234 episodes and quite a few years, to Natasha Lewis and now Colin Kinneborough for editing us, and most importantly, of course, to every single one of you who are still listening for sharing us with your friends, tweeting about us, sharing us on all of the other hell sites, talking about us, writing to us, and sharing your stories with us. We would especially appreciate it if you can rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. That really does help us find new listeners and new listeners help us pay the bills and continue doing the labor journalism. And on that note, of course, special thanks to those of you who are sustaining members of the podcast, either our longtime supporters over at the Descent website, where you can still find us at descentmagazine.org slash belabored, or on our Patreon page, where we have all sorts of fun rewards over at patreon.com slash belabored. We understand that a lot of people don't have spare cash right now, but we know that there are thousands of you out there listening and it would really help us to continue to be able to provide on the ground reporting and chasing all of these stories that, you know, frankly, a lot of publications don't want story after story on an eight month strike. And so doing belabored has allowed me to keep up with strikes like the St. Vincent strike. And, you know, if you do want to kick us some cash, we have some gorgeous Molly Crabapple worker portraits and other gifts and excellent belabored tote bags. Uh, as always, you can find out more on the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored, or that Patreon page, once again, is patreon.com slash belabored. And of course, of course, if you want to share your story of working or striking under coronavirus, you can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you are a taxi driver or a mechanical turker, a factory worker or a nurse, a graduate student employee or a grocery store worker, we want to hear from you. You can also always tweet at us at hashtag belabored. Thank you, as always, for supporting us. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. 
Join us online using hashtag belaboured.